Right. Good afternoon. So uh, let me just introduce can the I speaker. Take it back? No, huh? the, the mics. Can I take it back? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank you. Stealing is one thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're practicing. <that. laughs> okay. Uh, so good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to, profess, uh, to, to introduce to you Professor Galia Sabar who usually teaches uh, African studies at uh, Tel Aviv University. Currently, she's the president of the Rupin Academic Center. Um, among, uh, so among the many issues that uh, Professor Tabar has studied, I will note the following. These are the most, uh, uh, I guess, uh, intriguing to me that I found uh, in uh, the long list of uh, publications and works you've done. Uh, she's written about uh, Ethiopian Jews' struggle to reach Israel, about religion and politics in Africa, and the role of religious organizations in the HIV-AIDS prevention education efforts in Kenya. More pertinent to the topic of today's talk, since the later 1990s she has focused on African labor migrant in Israel, with a special emphasis on their socio-religious organizations and their complex relations with Israeli society and politics. Following the massive deportation of the early 2000s of undocumented migrants, migrant laborers from Israel, Professor Sabar has expanded her research to include homecoming patterns. And since 2006, her research has focused on African asylum seekers, mainly from Sudan and Eritrea, who have started entering Israel at the time via the border with Egypt, which has since been largely sealed. Uh, the title of her talk today is African Migration to Israel, Chronicle of, for, of a Failure Foretold. Right. Professor Sabai, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Professor Yadgal, and thank you for coming today. Um, it was very tempting for me to start talking about the recent events, about the whole issue of deportation. Uh, the new government decision to deport African asylum seekers from Eritrea and Sudan to a third country because Israel does not want to hold the African asylum seekers. And because it's on the news and it's a very heated debate, it was tempting to start with it. However, I thought that it wouldn't be right I think that in order to get a fuller picture and a broader understanding of the complexities entangled within the deportation, the right thing to do, especially within an academic uh, forum, would be really to go back in a very methodological way, in a systematic way, and to look at the historical and social context of the whole issue of non-Jewish migration to Israel specifically African migrants. And then at the end, we would reach what's going on today and really have a better understanding. So that is just a, a, a general comment. The second general comment would be on the way that I've conducted my research on non-Jewish migration to Israel over the past 20 years. And it has mainly been qualitative research uh, methodologies. Uh, open-ended and in-depth interviews, focus groups, and a lot of uh, being in the field and with the field. Uh, as Professor Yadger said, for many, many years, my research has focused on the religious lives of African migrants, and most of them are Christians. I believe that I am the Israeli that has the most hours in African churches <laughs> as a Jew in Tel Aviv. And I remember about 20 years ago when our elder son was about eight, my father called on a Saturday and he said, where's Ima, where's mom? And my son said, she's in church. <laughs> and you can imagine my father almost getting a heart attack, you know. So what is important for me was to try and study uh, the people and the phenomena and, and the, the questions in the most intimate way I could as a researcher, and yet keeping a critical, analytical way. Now, several years ago, I think it was about three years ago, um, after being in the field for over 15 years, um, it just started that Eritreans and Sudanese who came to seek asylum in Israel 
started to go back because they were pushed back by the Israeli government. And I think I was the first one to go and to try and see what's happening with these returnees. And this is just one quote that I think is very rich and worth reading it together. Before coming, I thought that Israeli people will understand me because they too suffered. But you know, after being in your country for so many years, I know that you don't really know or you refuse to know. So now I'm here in Kampala, no work, no future. I wish to come back to Israel. I have many Israeli friends. I can't go to my home. I'm a dead man if I go back. Now, I think it's very clear from this very short quote that there is a clear distinction in the eyes of many African asylum seekers between the government of Israel, this, this very big uh, institution or constituency, and the people of Israel. He has lots of friends. He wants to go back. And yet the state of Israel, in spite of the history of the Jewish people and the state of Israel, has pushed him out. And to try and really understand this dichotomy between what they feel towards the people of Israel and towards the state of Israel, and the way that they understand the Jewish history was really interesting for me, studying African uh, migrants in Israel. So uh, what we will try and do today briefly is go over several issues, the numbers that we are talking about, the countries of uh, origin, uh, the legal status, social life, and, and whatever time uh, will permit us. So let's start really with numbers. And although I'm a qualitative research researcher and numbers usually confuse us, I think to start with it's really important. Early 1990s, there were no non-Jewish African migrants. And, and I specifically say non-Jewish African migrants because I'm not speaking today about Ethiopian Jews or North African Jews, for that matter, both coming from the African continent. So we're really speaking about non-Jewish African migrants to Israel. So there were none in the beginning of the 1990s. That's not too long ago. Okay, now as you can see, nine years later, we have 20,000 African labor migrants in Israel. And when the number reached a high level, Israel started to deport these African labor migrants back home. We will see later on where they came from. If we go uh, fast, 2004, we've got only 4,000 African migrant workers. Now we see a new type of migration to Israel, no longer migrant workers, but asylum seekers. And as of the end of 2005, up until today, about 60,000 African asylum seekers entered Israel. And now we are at the second stage of deportation. So within this period of time, from the early 1990s up until today, two waves of two distinct groups of non-Jewish African migrants and two waves of deportation. So now let's go a little bit into uh, uh, the legal status when we are speaking about the state of Israel. So obviously uh, I'm sure that in this crowd I don't have to elaborate on the law of return, uh, which is really the basic of, of what uh, constitute the, the, the migration uh, legal frame uh, to Israel. And if you want to shortly say any and every Jew around the world has the right to migrate to Israel, not only has the right to migrate to Israel, but upon arrival gets full citizenship and a, and a, and, and a big welcome uh, hand. Okay. Um, however, there are very, very limited avenues for to gain citizenship for non-Jewish uh, migrants. Parallel or just uh, a few years after the law of return uh, uh, was created, then the law of entry uh, was created regulating the rights of non-nationals who were not Jewish to enter and reside to Israel. Now, although I'm not going to speak about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when we look at these laws, we have to keep that or bear that in mind, that this is the general context that these laws were created. The, uh, trying to rescue the Jews after Second World War and creating a safe home for the Jewish people, and vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians to create a clear border between us and uh, them. 
Now, uh, in 1954, because of the um, uh, tension between Israel and Jordan mainly, and the um, entry of the uh, infiltrators, the Palestinian, what they were called infiltrators, from Jordan, we had the 1954 Prevention of Infiltration Law. Now, what's interesting is that when the law was created in the mid-1950s, it was purely seeing Palestinian terrorists uh, infiltrating Israel. However, nowadays, when we are speaking, the African asylum seekers are called infiltrators. Okay? So, unless you really have the historical background, you realize how hard it is to, to people that do know the history to hear these asylum seekers being named infiltrators and to think, where did this term come from? Now, at the same time that all these basic laws uh, were con uh, constructed, Israel also signed, uh, accepted the Geneva Convention, the Refugee Convention, uh, and the Protocol of the Refugee Convention. And again, all this is tied basically to post-World War um, um, events. Okay, so now we have the legal background, and now let's look at the uh, recent history of the State of Israel. Now, up until the early, the late 1980s, early 1990s, Israel didn't have international migrant workers. Now, look around where we are now in England. International migrant workers was a phenomenon that started after World War II, and that's true to Germany with the Turks, it's true France with North Africans, it's true to all countries uh, uh, around you know the Western Hemisphere. However, Israel, although the economy was modern, didn't have international labor migrants, it had Palestinian workers. And, and they were replacing the cheap labor. However, they came to work in the morning and went back to their homes in the evening. So we didn't have the whole complexity of international migrant workers, like the Gastarbeit in, in Germany and in other uh, places. Once the Palestinian uprising, the first Palestinian uprising erupted in the late 1980s, the Intifada, all Israeli governments decided to uh, close the borders, to, to, to prevent the entry of Palestinians from coming to work in Israel. And there were two major fields that were uh, uh, truly hurt. It was construction and agriculture. And there was an acute shortage in human labor. Now, parallel to the Intifada, at the same time, in the early 1990s, we had the blessed influx of about a million migrants coming from ex-USSR. So on the one hand, you have a shortage of, of manpower in construction and agriculture, and you have to think where are you going to get the workers. You have the Russian new migrants coming, but there wasn't a clear shift of the new migrants into these fields of work, no. There was a third solution, and the third solution was to bring international migrant workers. So it's a very, very recent phenomena in the history of uh, Israel. Now, what's interesting to see is once the borders were open in 1990, we had the first year, we had about 4,000 international migrant workers. But within six years, you can see how wonderful the Israeli thought that this is. You know, um, why not bring Thai workers or Philippine workers or Chinese construction workers? They're much cheaper. They work harder. They have less demands. Okay? And they're not Palestinians and they're not Israelis. So everybody thought this was a big party that we are um, going into. So you can see that within a very, very short time in, in migration history and in labor migration history, in less than a decade, Israeli, Israel had about a quarter of a million international migrant workers. Now this, you know, Israel was at the time about 6.5 or 7 million people. A quarter of a million of workers, that's 10% of the workforce, were non-Israelis, non-residents, non-Palestinians. Okay. Once this started, uh, 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 we have to realize that once a country opens its borders and issues visas, others with no, with no visas uh, opt to enter, either on tourist visas or pilgrim visas, and overstay their visa, thus becoming uh, non-documented and illegal. Now, once the numbers reach this very high uh, uh, 
that's where we can see the 20,000 African labor migrants, which I mentioned before. They came once Israel has changed. Once Israel opened its borders, uh, Africans came uh, as well. And we have what I mentioned before, but that would be the second wave, and we will come to it a bit later. So now let's look closely at the wave of the first African labor migrants. Most of them came from Ghana and Nigeria, uh, approximately equal numbers, uh, men and women. Um, most of them lived in and around Tel Aviv and worked as house cleaners, uh, restaurant workers, you know, the, the, the triple D works, the dirty, the, the demeaning and the dangerous uh, works. Uh, they were young, they were very highly educated. They were uh, the strong members of their families from Ghana and uh, Nigeria. And what was truly impressive that in the heart of predominantly white and Jewish Tel Aviv, there was vibrant and, and amazing life of the African Christian uh, community. Uh, in the heart of that were uh, women's groups and sports clubs and uh, kids' nurseries and Sunday schools and political active groups vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Israeli government and their governments back home. And at the heart of this rich community were these African independent churches. Now, you would think that they came to the Holy Land, so they would go to the existing churches, the Catholics, the Protestants, either in Tel Aviv, in Jaffa, in Jerusalem, but no, that wasn't their type of Christianity. They, they were strong enough, they had funds, they had energy, they had all the, the social means that they needed, the social capital that they needed, so they created their own churches. And in the mid-1990s, late-1990s, we had about 50 Five-zero independent African churches only in Tel Aviv. I think this is an amazing phenomena to think about it. They really recreated a Christian discourse within the Holy uh, Land. And um, we could see that throughout their stay in Israel, they really um, uh, juggled in between three worlds. The world that they left, the world that they are right now, i.e. Israel, and the world that they wanted to go to, which was either Europe or US, where they could get a permanent status, you know, citizenship and so on. So it was really, really interesting to study that community. However, once the numbers of all the international migrants reached this high level of a quarter of a million, amongst them 20,000 Africans, the Israeli government started the first deportation. And most of the African labor migrants were deported, most of them. Uh, the only ones remaining uh, were those who came from um, countries where Israel could not deport to, Congo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, where they had a civil war and they got some kind of protection, or due to their children that were born and raised in Israel. And out of a humanitarian gesture, the government of Israel in 2005 decided to give about uh, 160 children and their immediate relatives a permanent residency in Israel. That was the first time in the Israeli history that this was given to non-Jewish uh, children that were born in Israel, raised in Israel, that Israeli was their culture, uh, so the government uh, gave them. Um, and it's interesting, sorry, it's 900, yeah, 160 African children. And what was interesting to see is how history uh, really has its way of, of, uh, of being created. Because just parallel to this one-time humanitarian gesture of giving these foreign children an Israeli citizenship, that's when a new wave of migrants started to come to Israel. Now, it's not directly related, obviously. But when we look at the general picture of the history of non-Jewish migration to Israel, it is related. Okay? Now, this cohort of, of African migrants were African asylum seekers, and they started to come, as I said, December 2005 up until very recently, and that's a whole different group of people. Now, many people speak of Africa as a country. It's Chimamanda Adichie, the famous writer, says it drives her crazy that people relate to Africa as a country. So, obviously, I don't, and 50 four countries and they're very very distinct so the first cohort as i said were nigerians and Ghanaians, mainly from west africa and these are mainly eritreans and sudanese now 
whereas the Ghanaians and Nigerians flew into Israel via the Ben-Gurion airport with a proper visa, these crossed by foot to Israel through the Lux border with Egypt or the No border with Egypt. Okay, so Israel, well, well, Israel is the country, the only Western or so-called Western country that has a border with the African continent that people can walk through. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so we can see how close it is and, and we can see the numbers that over the years, uh, over 50,000 uh, African asylum seekers came from Eritrea and about 13,000 from Sudan, both from South Sudan and from uh, Darfur. The Eritreans were mainly men and the uh, Sudanese, it's also predominantly a male-dominated uh, uh, migration. Um, I'm sure as people living in England, you're very, very well aware of the whole uh, migration cycles that everybody is speaking about them these days. And the one from Northeast Africa is just but one route of Africans trying to seek asylum in Europe, crossing the Mediterranean to Spain and Greece. Okay, so we are the far eastern side of this very, very big uh, um, migration uh, paths towards you know, better life that Africans are seeking to find. So it's not something unique to Israel, absolutely not. So we have to look at the, at the or to focus at the, what's happening in our side of the world, but we are part of a much, much larger uh, movement. Now let's go back to numbers. So when the first African asylum seekers started to arrive, there were less than 3,000. That's nothing. But look at how fast the numbers grow. And within one year, 2011, over 17,000 men, women, and children crossed from Egypt to Israel. Now that's big. If you think about it, it's thousands every month that just keep on entering Israel. Okay, and the numbers are accumulating. And the total was about 65,000 African asylum seekers within a period of about six years. Okay, now if we look, then we can see that the, the vast majority were from Eritrea, 70%, 20% from uh, Sudan. And if we compare between migrant workers, African migrant workers, that's the green line on the right-hand side, that was close to nothing. That was a few thousand, and the vast majorities became African asylum seekers. But for a lot of Israelis, they were all Africans. They were all black, okay? There was no distinction between the various people, the various reasons for coming, their social and historical uh, reasons for coming to Israel. Um, while we're speaking, we can see that from 65,000, the remaining are 37,000, i.e. between 2013, and, and, and when, when the border between Israel and Egypt was completed, there was no more entry, okay? you can see that it dropped down. And last year, there were like five people who managed to cross the border. So no new asylum seekers are coming into Israel since 2013. However, 20,000 have already gone. And the quote that I started with is one of those 20,000 who left Israel before or prior to what we're witnessing right now. So when we look at the legal status, I just put on the right-hand side, just so you don't have to memorize what we spoke before, this is the legal framework of non-Jewish migration to Israel, but what was going on with these asylum seekers? Now, anybody who knows the Israeli history with refugees, let me take you just for a moment back, and here again we have to put the Palestinian-Israeli conflict on the table. The United Nation that handles refugees around the world has one main agency for refugees. It's the UNHCR, the United Nation High Commissioner for Refugees. However, the only refugee people that the UNHCR does not handle are the Palestinians. 
They have their own, you UNRWA, okay, refugee, uh, uh, or their own organization. So the state of Israel really never had to deal with the issues of refugees because you UNRWA was dealing with Palestinians and others did not come to Israel. Throughout our 70 years of independence, everybody remembers when Menachem Begin was the prime minister, there was this ship of refugees coming from Vietnam with 60 people on board, so we welcomed them. Then during the Yugoslavian war, we had some Bosnians, uh, uh, youngsters coming, nothing. Uh, less than a few hundreds came to Israel over the years. So once these Eritreans and Sudanese started to arrive to Israel, there was no system within the state of Israel of dealing with refugees. So the United Nations did that for us for several years. And what the state of Israel decided to do after jailing them for a short time was to give all those entering and seeking asylum a group temporary protection which means you cannot deport them, but they do not get the rights of refugees, okay? And that means they cannot work, they don't have social benefits, they don't have health insurance. The main right is that they cannot be deported, okay? Now, when you think about it, and you all know the Refugee Convention, uh, a refugee status is, is something that is um, examined on an individual basis. A person goes in and his or her story is examined. Not because they come from a certain country they automatically get, but they have to be persecuted personally. Now here what the State of Israel said, if you come from Sudan you get a group protection, or if you come from Eritrea, so we're not really trying to understand your personal uh, story. So that is actually the status of the thousands of thousands of African asylum seekers that live right now in Israel. Now what's interesting to see that from 2006 onwards, uh, politics of identity were, were really in, in place uh, and for the first time in the history of Israel, an African refugee sector was developed. And it was developed first by their own initiative they initiated groups and associations and, and they knew the, the discourse <coughs> of human rights, but also the Israeli civil society extended an open hand to this new African refugee uh, seekers. One of the main issues uh, that uh, um, developed was due to the fact that most of the African refugees, about 50% of them, live in the slums of Tel Aviv in the southern parts of the city. The southern parts of the city, the slums of Tel Aviv, where the weakest uh, Jewish population lives. So what really happened is what happens all over the world in neighborhoods of refugees or neighborhoods of newcomers. The, the lower uh, or the, the low class of the locals meets the new migrants and there's a lot of tension and friction over resources, over space, over uh, legitimacy, and so on. So that's really uh, one of the main issues that are now on the table, where we can see that there is a clash between two underprivileged groups, the local, the Jewish Israelis, and the others, the African asylum seekers. Um, what's truly interesting, because I'm, I, I have a, a broad perspective, because I've been studying African migration to Israel for almost 20 years, is to see the difference between the discourses and, and, and the whole conduct where the first cohort of, of African migrants from West Africa, the labor migrants, they hardly spoke about their rights to migrate to Israel. They hardly used the Jewish history in order to gain legitimacy in Israel. They didn't do that. However, the new uh, cohort of, of African asylum seekers really knows the history of the Jewish people, uses it in its plea uh, uh, for asylum uh, and also very, very well acquainted uh, with the rights um, that they are supposed to get through the Refugee Convention. So it's interesting to see that. Another interesting thing to see is the political organization of African asylum seekers in Israel in the past three or, f three or four years. They managed to rally huge demonstrations with thousands and thousands of asylum seekers and also thousands of Israelis. This is one of the issues that the Israeli civil society 
is really being split, but very, very active, pro and against, but very, very active. And for people who know the Israeli civil society, which usually is very indifferent to most issues that in other places are very interesting, it's, it's um, at least intriguing uh, to learn about it. I think that 2012 is really the changing point. Uh, first of all, the, the group protection on South Sudanese was lifted because South Sudan became independent and thousands of South Sudanese were re, uh, returned home. The border, uh, was the, the border was completed, as I said uh, before, and the State of Israel constructed a new prison in the desert called Cholot, which literally means sand. Uh, and people who started entering Israel or refused to exit Israel were sent to unlimited time to Cholot. So people who were seeking asylum were facing a dire situation. Either you go to a third country, i.e. Uganda or Rwanda, you don't go back to your own home, or you're going to prison to an unlimited time. And this is the dilemma that most of them are facing uh, right now. And parallel to the legal um, decrees that the State of Israel issued in order to stop new ones from coming and to encourage those who were to, to leave, was instigating a hate debate. Um, a hate debate against what was called infiltrators. And because, as I said before, infiltrators that are symbolically related, linguistically related, and ideologically related to Palestinian terrorists. Once you use this word in the Hebrew language, immediately there is a whole world of association that rises that truly is not linked to issues of asylum seeking and refugees. So, as we're speaking right now from February 1st, 2018, the option for young men with no family that come from Eritrea and Sudan is either to leave to Rwanda and Uganda with $3,500 or to be jailed unlimited uh, time. And um, this really raises a lot of moral uh, questions, legal questions, questions about the identity of the State of Israel. Um, and where are we going with the situation of African asylum seekers or asylum seekers in general? Thank you. Before I open these questions, can I ask you to uh, tell us what happens to them when they get to these three third countries? Um, that's the quote that I started with is, is a quote of one of the Eritreans who went to Uganda and has no life there. I mean, I'll go back and I'll ask a question. Why would you deport an Eritrean to Uganda? Because he's black and they're black? Because you have good relation with the president and you can sell these people and pay $5,000 per person to the Ugandan government or the Rwandan or whatever government would agree. What is the, the ideology, uh, ideology behind it or the legal framework behind it? That's something that I really don't have an answer. But what I do have an answer is they are sent back, not to their immediate death. That would be really a demagogic way of saying it. But they're sent to a country that is poor, that is struggling with its own uh, issues, that has, at least Uganda and Rwanda, have over a million refugees within their uh, country. They have no net of support. They have no extended family, a very weak civil society, not very uh, competent UNHCR offices, so how are they going to manage? And, and that's a huge question. And, and what our research has shown, the one that I started and, and, and my, a lot of my students have kept going on with this research, is that a lot of them just go back into the refugee cycle and try and migrate via Libya, the Mediterranean, to Europe. Some make it and some die en route. So that is you know, what's really happening. Is that a question?
Um, two questions. Um, why do the well-educated initial migrants go to Israel? I mean, why? Well, surely they would have had a good time in their own country, or at least they would have had good prospects in their own country. The other one is in the one of the earlier slides you showed to do with infiltration of the law. You mentioned enemy states. But these aren't enemy states, are they? Okay. Uh, I'll start with your first question. It, it's a huge enigma in, in many ways, and, and a very simple question in, in other ways. Let's say someone, uh, I met Ghanaian doctors, MDs, that made in Ghana between 200 and $300 a month. Coming to Israel, they would make between 1000 and and. 1,500 per month as house cleaners. So it was truly within this first batch of, of migrants, it was a, you know, a classical labor migrant that you just improve your, your financial status. And that's between a doctor and a house cleaner. Now, let alone when you, you think about a housewife or someone who is, only has a bachelor degree that comes from Ghana and Nigeria. So the gap between what he made back home and what he can make working as a house cleaner in, in, in Tel Aviv or in London, you know, this, this huge amount of money is, is, is a great attraction for them. So that's for your first question. The second question about the infiltration uh, law, indeed Sudan, where at least uh, 20,000 uh, asylum seeker came from, came from, is considered an enemy country to Israel. So the infiltration law does apply to them. However, it doesn't apply to Eritreans and definitely not to people who seek asylum. Yeah. Uh, what's the language? The it's language? The language issue. These migrants come with other languages. They come to Israel with another language, and now they're going back to a country with another language. That's true. Mm -hmm. what's it, it, well, most of them do manage either with, with English in Israel, or they study basic Hebrew. They study basic Hebrew. And those coming from Eritrea that speak Tigrinya, they can communicate with Ethiopian Jews that came from the northern part of Ethiopia and also speak Tigrinya. But most of them either learn very quickly Hebrew or they speak in English. Yeah. Now when they go back to, when they, not back, when they are deported to Uganda or Rwanda, you're right. Again, it's either English or no, Uganda and Rwanda, it's English. Yeah, no. Um, I have two questions. First of all, uh, I when I lived in, uh, in South and Tel Aviv, I used to hear all these um, people around me speaking. And uh, when one, one day I heard Nigerian uh, Nigerian speaker and rant about their neighbors. They spoke in English, and I could finally understand what's going on around me. And I realized that the relations between subgroups, Eritrean mm -hmm. and Sudanese, and others are not always right. um, perfect. Right. So since then, I've been wondering <laughs> what's what's really the relations between. I mean, obviously it varies, and mm -hmm. um, but if there is anything. Anyway, to summarize, yeah, that's generally. that's yeah, okay. okay, that's a really, really, really interesting and intriguing phenomena. When the African migration, African migrants were few hundreds and few thousand, there, there was a very much an African identity. Okay, they came from the African continent. We had churches that had Nigerians, Ghanaians, Congolese, which are French-speaking, uh, Sierra Leone, and, and others. But once the community grew. There were fractions based on nationality and then based on ethnicity, okay? That would be one thing. Then when the African asylum seekers came, then on the one hand, there was this black African uh, identity. And on the other hand, we are not they. They are others. So you would see that, but, you know, you, you see that amongst Jews. You see that amongst, you know, veteran migrants versus new migrants upper-class migrants versus lower-class migrants. So these divisions uh, did occur. However, now when, when there is this, uh, these African infiltrators, uh, you know, said or spit by, 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 by sub-politicians or, or right-wing uh, um, activists, then they don't make a distinction. And 
everybody that is black is hurt, including Ethiopian Jews. Okay, so, yeah. yeah she had another question, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Uh, take too much of your time, but uh, since I got here, I actually sorry, it's also personal, but uh, I um, I got to to discuss this issue with many many students who are working on uh, migration and uh, migration studies and, and refugee studies here, and um, and uh, you know I could put Israeli story in a much broader uh, framework and. Uh, and it is clear that other countries, such as Italy and Greece, are facing problematic um, mm -hmm. situations as well. And it seems as if, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could say a few words about how Israel is um, positioned in relation to, not to Germany, and you know, the strong countries were able to accept uh, refugees, but, um, yeah. If we, uh, we're in February 2018, Israel has 37,000 Africans seeking asylum. That's it. Not more, not less. I think that the state of Israel is strong enough to grant them temporary residency and in the time proceed their refugee status determination applications properly. Those who would be uh, granted refugee status according to the United Nations Convention should remain in the country as long as the situation in their country has not changed and there is still danger to their lives. Those who are not eligible to the status, then it's a whole different story. And then the state of Israel has the, the moral and the legal right to deport or to find a solution. But 37,000 African asylum seekers is not a threat, neither to the Jewish nature or character of the State of Israel, nor to its democratic. And I think it's our obligation to accept them as long as their, their lives is in danger if they're returning back. That's what I think. So, yeah, no, so it's, it's... I mean, and I agree with yeah. you. <laughs> no, no, the question is how... If we if we can um, can compare the the, the official um, statements of Israel to other European countries such as Italy and Greece and their policy as well, because from what I understand, in Italy refugees are are um, jailed as well um, for and and are, are not the refugees, the asylum seekers. The Once you are a refugee, you're not jailed. Okay. But listen, all these countries have taken in a certain number of asylum seekers and refugees. They, they already have taken in. So their policies that are being constructed now are post-taking in. I mean, they're, they're looking at the future. Israel has not taken its share in this global refugee migration cycle. And I think that once it will take its share, then it can have more stricter regulation vis-a-vis -vis new uh, asylum seekers, whether coming from Africa or from other countries. Could you elaborate on the actual legal system that's been set up to process the asylum claims? Because there has been a system set up, right? And yeah. uh, my understanding, so I volunteered for a while at HIAS, mm -hmm. um, and my understanding there was that there's actually a very professional system, and it, the claims go up to the desk of a minister, and the minister just refuses to sign. Um, in many cases. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll go from the end point back. Up until today, Israel recognized 12, okay, as refugees. That's it. Out of about 30 so thousand applications. How did they choose these 12 people? They had to have the worst horrific stories, A, and B, they had to have a very, very good legal uh, advice. And you, most of them were victims of human trafficking and atrocities um, that were um, that they suffered in the Sinai Desert from the Bedouin people. But only twelve. That's it. Okay. The the twelfth was recognized last week. So that shows that a the system is extremely strict. I mean. It, you can't even count it in percentage-wise. It's 0.037 recognition rate 
whereas Greece has the lowest recognition rate, and I think it's 1.5%. Okay, um, most Eritreans in Europe, it's about 70% recognition. Sudanese, it's about 55% recognition in their applications. So Israel, by no means. Now, as I said before, in the beginning, it was the UNHCR who did the process, and then the State of Israel took over in 2009 and 2013. And there is a professional team, but it's very small, limited number of people, and they just can't cope with the number of, of uh, requests that take time to issue. And then when they do process it, usually that they, they just uh, um, reject uh, the requests, yeah. And how many people even get to process claims? Okay, uh, up until today, uh, about 7,000, I think, African uh, refugee claims were processed, and about the same number of Ukraine um, uh, claims of refugee. Yeah, Israel had, uh, Israel had in the past four years about 25,000 Ukraine uh, and Moldovian and other ex-USSR people seeking asylum in our country, and most of them were rejected and deported back to Ukraine, not to a third country. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't speak about. Yeah. You had commenting on an observation and then a, a question. Um, my impression is with the immigration and so on, you know, think Brexit, think the Trump election, you know, on and on you go, that, that there has not been a distinction between legal and illegal. That seems to, to be missing, you know, whichever side you, you, you come in, not the law can do the same. And I, I suspect there is a difference between legal and illegal. Um, and, and the question, the other thing is, has anyone looked at things like cultural differences? Um, because it's easy with, with say, Africa, or black or something like that, but I mean, very Eastern Europe and the, the things, there are profound cultural differences that I think we, we pick up very quickly. Um, I mean, I think there are languages, for instance, in which there's no word for thank you, because the idea of grace is just not there. You know, heaven doesn't, it makes it, it's sun to shine on the just and the unjust, but that is not an idea that's in, in the culture. Or, you know, there are lots of other things one, one could, one could adduce to that. Uh, and they, uh, like, my suspicion is that they do play into this somewhere, even if it's only the, the level of what you do when you're living in a favela with your neighbours. Okay. Um as to your first question about legal status, to the best of my knowledge, there are hardly any refugees that enter a country with a legal document prior to their entry and prior to their seeking asylum, i.e. any crossing of borders is, by definition, illegal. Okay, so when you speak about refugees, and, and the, then, then the, once you cross the border, you cross it illegally. Once you're in the country that you're seeking asylum, you can uh, process papers and, and a request for asylum. So there is no uh, pre-journey uh, refugee visa. There are hardly any pre-journey. So each and every asylum seeker in the world has gone through a process of being illegal in a certain country. Okay, So that is one thing. Uh, once you process your papers, you are in a very specific legal situation where you are seeking asylum. Now, countries around the world have different uh, uh, rules and regulations concerning this uh, in-between status, but it, it is a legal status to seek asylum. Then you seek it, and either you get it or you're refused, okay? Then your legal status changes. So that's one thing. The other thing is with migration in general, um, Obviously, people who overstay their visas, whether it's a, a student visa or a working visa or any other visa, are illegally in the country that they are. So, of course, there is, there is a, a distinction, and I, I hope that I made it clear, but all those seeking asylum go through a phase of being uh, illegal at one point. As to the question of, of cultural refugee, of, uh, of cultural differences, obviously you're right. And because it was just an overview, I didn't go into it. But when I did my studies, I truly went into the specificities of, of 
ethnic and sub-ethnic uh, identities. However, uh, in these kind of discourses, people tend to generalize, and even politicians and policy makers would like say, all those coming from this country or that country. However, the Refugee Convention really speaks about the individual person, and that's exactly why the convention is so strict about uh, processing the, the request based on your individual story, your individual cultural background, or, or why you were persecuted, and so on, your gender, and, and, and all that counts in, in that process. Yeah, Marianne, and then so I have uh, two questions. Um, the first one is, um, I'm wondering, because we, we, we looked at the numbers, and the numbers are striking, the, the, the differences between the numbers. Um, but I'm wondering if there is a, a defining moment there, a moment where those people became from uh, refugees or, or asylum seekers mm -hmm. to infiltrators. or or some defining moments there, apart from the huge number uh, rising up. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. And then the second one, um, so uh, based on my uh, familiarity with your uh, earlier work, uh, I'm wondering if you have any, uh, when you were doing this, when you were doing this field work, if you have any thoughts and you have a specific attention uh, now towards uh, these people's uh, spiritual and religious uh, experiences, and if you do have um, insights into into that, uh, do they kind of stay more in the kind of in the backstage of your study, or do they uh, do they become part of mm -hmm. that that you make on uh, uh, migration issues? Okay, it's interesting the issue of numbers, and and I put back the uh, chart with the numbers. When they started to come to Israel in 2007, the then Prime Minister, I think it was Ehud Ulmelt, gave uh, or acknowledged 500 asylum seekers from Sudan and gave them temporary residency in Israel. And again, this was uh, 500 more were, were gaining that status a few years later. And just recently, the government issued another thousand of uh, temporary uh, status for those coming from Darfur and South Sudan, the, the few remaining from South Sudan. So yes, they're, they're the, the numbers, the, the change in the discourse between refugees, survivors of the genocide in Darfur, which were very common in the first few years, completely are uh, eliminated from the discourse today, and it's infiltrators and black infiltrators and cancer and, and so on. And now, because of the protest, the government is saying, no, 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 we are uh, um, landing a, a, or, 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 or uh, extending a merciful hand to, to true refugees, to survivors of the genocide, and here are a thousand more uh, visas, but the vast majority are still related to as infiltrators. As to your second question, it's interesting because I, who sat in the churches, that was the first thing I was looking, their spiritual life of the Eritreans and Sudanese. And this was interesting because they were younger, they were, uh, it's a different Christianity, it's the Eastern Christianity, it's very similar to the Greek Orthodox Church, it's the Ethiopian Eritrean Church. They did go to the Ethiopian church in Jerusalem and, and pray there. I mean, they didn't create their own Christianity, but they didn't celebrate their religiosity as strong as the African migrants that came from Ghana and Nigeria. The Sudanese, it's more complex because those coming from Darfur are Muslims. Now, they quickly realized that if they are going to celebrate their Muslim identity, that would be the end of any merciful and, and humanitarian gesture toward them within the state of Israel. Because n not only that they're black infiltrators, Sudanese, they're also Muslims. So that was something that was too much to celebrate in the public arena. So they do practice their, their Islamic identity if they wish, mainly within their private homes. I have one of my graduate students who has uh, been working on um, Sudanese asylum seekers that live in uh, Arab villages in the Galilee mm. and work there. Uh, it's, it's, it's several dozens, but it's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. 
how, how are they received by the Muslim Arab, Palestinian Arab? It's an excellent question. You know, the genocide in Darfur was instigated by um, Arab Muslims against black Muslims. And the issue of race was playing there and not religiosity. And the Darfurian blacks hate the Arab Muslims because they are responsible for the genocide. Now, they come to Israel and it's Arab Muslims. Okay, So there is a huge animosity. However... When they were seeking life and, and trying to get away from Tel Aviv, they did go to the Arab villages. They're treated as blacks and they're called uh, Zanj, which is a derogative term for blacks within the Arab language. Zanj, which is a, a word also used to describe slaves in, in, in ancient time. So um, here it's race that plays rather than re uh, religious identity. Yeah. I, first I have a vignette and then I have a couple of questions. When I was uh, in high school uh, in 1997-1998 when I was in Israel, I was already in Kitaib so my parents sent me to the American school and one of my best friends was the son of the Thai ambassador and only now I realized why his father was so busy all the time was because <laughs> this was the height of you know, the Thai, Thai worker <laughs> uh, you know, phenomenon yeah. uh, in Israel because all I remember was seeing his father being very stressed out, you know, rushing from one meeting to the other in, in suits. Um, two interrelated questions that aren't so much about the African migrants themselves but more about the reception of this whole crisis within the Israeli public or maybe also the broader public. The first is, I think this subject came up a couple of weeks ago when we had another guest here, is that I, I tend to see a lot of um, uh, Israelis that, for one reason or another, are not particularly juiced up about injustices against Palestinians who become extremely involved in the African migrant crisis, which obviously has a different kind of resonance on the scale of morality and questions. Part of it, I think, is, you know, um, conflict fatigue, but I'm, I'm wondering first why it is that it seems to be easier for Israelis in some way to get involved with this and not with that, um, although there is obviously a cross-mingling of population of activists who work on both causes, uh, etc. And the second was I saw that you had a, um, a poster up there that said Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that I've been very interested in this new project I'm working on that I'll tell you about more is really about why, you know, today in the diaspora, you can't be a Zionist in Black Lives Matter. But here they're, you know, specifically mobilizing the tropes of this international, you know, international movement for their cause. And I'm wondering how that's received abroad, whether, you know, activists of Black Lives Matter have seized on this issue or are they indifferent because it's within the state of Israel and they generally do not see a way of as to your first question, that's a huge issue uh, to be explored and, and that is why I, in the beginning of my talk, at least twice I said that it is related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and a lot of people in Israel opt not to relate to it. But this is not the only issue that a lot of Israeli activists um, make you know, alienate themselves from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and adopt issues of human right and liberal, left liberal, but turning a blind eye to the Palestinian. I think that being a human right activist vis-a-vis -vis African migration is less threatening to a lot of Israelis than being a right-wing, a, a left-wing activist vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But that's that's what I, you know, I would, that would be a general... Also because you think the social cost is different? I mean, it seems to me that my friends who are involved in the African migrant movement are not paying the same social cost as friends who are on the left in Israel regarding... The right now, anybody who is who's saying anything against the Israeli government is being labeled as a leftist, so it doesn't really matter what is the cause that you're adopting to, to criticize, you are labeled. But maybe, yes, the, the price is much higher. As to the uh, Black Lives Matter, that was a one-time sign that I saw that I thought was very, very interesting. I don't think that the movement in the US or the UK has picked up, but I think that the African asylum seekers are so well aware of all the discourses of black rights around the world that they thought that if they would pick up that kind of discourse, that would matter uh, to others. But, uh, yeah. Sure, 
question, uh, uh, to, uh, to relate the question. I guess one of the, uh, the things that is recurring, and I guess it's still in the air, uh, is the question, uh, so what would be, in your eyes, the uniquely Israeli aspect of this story? Because it is, you, just, you insisted on showing it, it, it is a global story. Uh, and there are two ways, I think, to understand it. Maybe these are the two related questions. How is uh, the Israeli case uh, illuminated when compared to the European history, or the European uh, contemporary history? And how is it illuminated when compared to other Middle Eastern countries? Are other Middle Eastern countries absorbing any of these refugees? How, are they do, how, are, how, how do they cope with the okay. So first of all, I think that it's, it's a global story. It's both global and local. It has its global resonance, obviously, but Israel has its unique history. And I think that due to the unique Israeli Jewish history, I think Israel has to adopt a policy that is in some way different than other countries. Um, not going into one side. I mean, it has to be, you know, both strict, keeping and maintaining the state of Israel as a safe haven for the Jewish people. At the same time, it has to uh, uh, use or to put into action the unique history of Jewish refugees. So trying to find this path, which is neither on this side nor on that side, and keeps the, Jewish, the state of Israel as a Jewish safe haven, but being a safe haven to Jews because of our unique history, we do have to be more sensitive to people who are running for their lives, who are victims of genocide. So I think that that's where we are in a unique position. And as to your second question, Turkey has over 1.5 million Syrian refugees. Jordan has over 1.7, uh, I think, uh, million refugees. Lebanon is a state of refugees. Egypt has several millions of refugees. So in that sense, we are not unique. We are part of the Middle East. And, and I didn't speak at all about the several hundred Syrian refugees that are in Israel, but that's a drop of, uh, it's really insignificant. Uh, so yes, we are part and we sometimes we, we wanna be part of and other times we wanna be unique. And that's why it's such a global phenomenon. I was going to ask you a question which you more or less answered in the in general question, not nothing to do with Jews, Israelis, and Arabs, or Muslims. Is, is this sort of thing? I mean, are there so 10 people somewhere in Syria sitting at this time? talking about refugees from the war in Syria, like us talking. But is that something European, Western, which does not, although it's happening in the Middle East, it doesn't concern the Middle East population. I'm saying, are there people like that who are in the Middle East, who really think the, the whole question of refugee is European, let's say. I know it, 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 it yeah. diffuse why... I, I why think that if you go on the net, you will find a lot of human rights activists in all the countries around the Middle East, but their lives are in misery, and sometimes their lives is in danger. And That's I, I yeah. Uh, so. Yet, in spite of their difficult situation, they struggle to change their the situation from within. But thank God that at least in Israel and other places we live in a democracy and we can and should uh, speak out uh, and think also about the limits of democracy and the benefits of democracy. Well, we see the democracy, sorry, I don't want to go on, uh, about what's happening in Germany. G uh, Germany has taken so many people. Saudi Arabia has taken any. Yeah, that's right. The that's right. picture of the tents at the Hajj, you know, that are standing all year long, these air-conditioned, beautiful tents, which 
would be used to house a lot of people. Similar money. Yeah. Sorry. Total population we're talking about. That's confusing because we've got. The state of Israel right so now it's eight point something million. And, and what's the direction? Is it <laughs> the, Israel has one of the highest fertility rate uh, within the OECD countries, uh, and, and it's yeah. So it's it's no eight eight point eight point something is both. Yeah. Eight, eight point something is those holding Israeli citizenship, both Jews and Arabs. And migration? No, migration. Mm, no, oh, no, Jews who have migrated have an Israeli uh, citizenship. That's why they're counted within the 8.2 or 3 yeah, million. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I should mention that my new project, the other case study is South African Zionism. <laughs>